Today's show is sponsored by Airtable. Airtable is the all-in-one collaboration tool that powers the teams behind the next generation of addictive multimedia content. That's reality shows like 60 Days In on A&E, thoughtful technology reviews from The Wirecutter, quick-turn video from powerhouses like Group 9 Media and Condé Nast Entertainment. All those companies use Airtable, so you should try it today. Get $50 in credit free by visiting Airtable.com slash Recode Media. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here today with David Carey, president of Hearst Magazines. I think of him as the guy who runs Hearst, but that's not officially true. In my spare time. There is someone else who really runs Hearst, but I run the magazine division. Tell us some of the, the fine titles that you're in charge of at Hearst. We are proud to be the world's largest publisher of monthly magazines, and so our biggest businesses are Cosmopolitan and Ellen Harper's Bazaar and Esquire and Town & Country, and um, we are about to, uh, in January, close on the acquisition of Rodale, bringing men's health and women's health and prevention and bicycling and runners world into our portfolio, which will put us over 300 uh, media brands around the world. So there are a handful of giant magazine publishers left. You are one of them. You said you're the biggest by biggest, revenue, by bi- title, Biggest revenue. monthly publisher. So uh, I think Time Inc. historically was larger in terms of revenue, but mostly from the weeklies, we're the biggest monthly publisher in the world. I think this will air in, in January, um, at which point Time Inc. will still be a separate magazine, but at some point that's supposed to get subsumed by Meredith. Let's let's start there. Um, what is, and you just mentioned the Rodale deal that you, that you will have closed, I think, by the time this thing comes out. What is spurring this round of consolidation in the magazine business? Well, Peter, I'm disappointed this airs in January because I was hoping to remind people magazines make a great holiday gift for you your can, loved you, ones. You can still buy them in January. <laughs> you still can. They're much what, thinner, what usually. What else can you buy that's uh, less than $20 that reminds people uh, a dozen times a year? Of buy a subscription. Exactly. So I, I'm here to uh, sell magazine subscriptions. Uh, I, I think we're in a period of uh, massive of media consolidation, not just the magazine business. Clearly. But um, by the time, you know, this airs, perhaps the Disney-Fox move gets done. And so when the Murdochs are taking money off the table, that's a big statement all by itself. You've seen the deregulation of the local TV business, which is going to spur a huge amount of M&A. You've seen the relaxation of cross-ownership of newspapers and television in the same market. And so uh, no no doubt the, the rate of uh, of consolidation only picks up. And the magazine business, I think, has been overdue for this for some time. And um, obviously, our acquisition of Rodale, the Meredith acquisition, historically the kind of number four company in terms of Meredith size. Meredith has always wanted to buy portions of Time Inc. Now it looks like that's finally going to happen. Bought the whole thing in an enormous synergy play. Uh, and, um, you know, Meredith's trailing earnings are $375 million, and they hope to get $400 million just in cost save out of the deal. And so uh, businesses operate better at scale. And, and obviously some of this is driven by, uh, I hear there's two big companies in the digital space that have a lot of the revenue growth and that people realize. Yeah, with Schmoogle and Schmeichbook. Exactly. I forget their names from yeah. time to time. But they, you know, companies need to, to bulk up in order to have sufficient scale to be able to drive enough revenue. So you mentioned Murdoch selling. I wrote something that said that. Said that. We think alike. Great minds said if Rupert Murdoch is selling... Why, why would you want to be buying what he has, right? He's one of the sharpest operators. Jeff Bukas, also a smart guy, Bukas took says, the same thing a year I, ago. I want to sell. Yep. Um, that deal may not happen. He runs Time Warner, trying to sell to AT&T. That's now going to be litigated. Um, so when you have guys who are sort of at the peak of their form saying, now's a good time for me to leave the table, um, that would worry me as a buyer. And you're now a buyer, in, in the mag- at least in the magazine, well, actually a bunch of stuff, but in the magazine business. What about this makes you want to spend more money? 
Yeah, so keep in mind, you know, Hearst is, um, uh, the Hearst Corporation is, is highly acquisitive, but we don't really do any deals that ever kind of threaten the company or, or that are bigger than us. So we do a series of two to $400 million deals per year, which, which is fundamentally within our capacity to do that. Um, we've long admired the Rodale businesses. In fact, we publish men's health and women's health and runner's world around the world. We've had a, we publish the brands in the UK. And so we, um, we believe that organization was early in identifying kind of wealthy, W-E-L-T-H-Y, as an important uh, consumer trend, which is uh, evident around the world. You see it in the billion-dollar valuation of Peloton, the amount of spending your friends do on SoulCycle. And um, in a world I've, where— I've even gone to— You've even gone to once or twice. Free, the one that's not—the one that's, that's less—what's uh, the word? For less scary for people like less you Less scary for people like me— at least the free wheel, I think it's called a uh, free yeah, cycle. Yeah. One of those. Yeah, I did Peloton one time with my daughters, and um, first, I mean, um, SoulCycle. And that was the first and last time uh, I did that. I don't so. think it's for us. No, it's for many other people. But in a world, especially, of course, digital becomes a bigger part of it, where uh, these brands travel well. Men's health kind of means the same thing around the world. So we launched Women's Health Digital Only uh, in Japan in the last year. Our, our joint venture in China publishes Men's Health. We publish the Men's Health and Women's Health brands in the Netherlands and the UK. So we know these businesses. We know their, their potential. And so for us, it's a very attractive bolt-on to our existing business and strengthens our company, especially in some verticals uh, where we perhaps don't have as much advertising weight as we should. So this was a very natural fit for us. And to be clear, you're still in the magazine business, right? Sometimes a title like, again, by the time this comes out, someone may may have bought Rolling Stone. And when a title like that comes up or a Forbes or maybe in the future a Fortune, people say, oh, the brand has a lot of value and I could see taking this to other territories and we could do something with it online and maybe there's a Rolling Stone hotel we could do in Malaysia. But you're still in the business of, of first and foremost, creating in magazines, selling them, selling advertising, actual print. Well, print uh, in the U.S., just take our U.S. business, for example, our profits are two-thirds print and one-third digital. And so we want to be good at both. And uh, we see digital as a very important uh, driver of profits. And uh, I think we're uniquely profitable in the digital space. And so if you look at what we've done in the, in the last six months, we've announced new digital partnerships with Shonda Rhimes. She, she took her all of her content, and she's, we're going to be building a new digital channel. And we've launched a new print magazine with Reed Drummond called Pioneer Woman that was the best-selling magazine in the United States when it was uh, on sale. And, some and so, of, our, so some we, of the people we, who we, listen to this show won't know who Reed Drummond is. Yeah, so I bet if you can stand on the roof and see the ocean, you probably will not appreciate Re. But um, uh, certainly in Walmarts and other locations in the middle of the country, uh, we sold over 350,000 copies of the second issue. For the first issue, we had to go back on press that the demand was so great. She's so, kind of a Martha Stewart, but not instead of being waspy in Connecticut, she's middle America and... Well, she's based in Oklahoma, and so, so she's got, and so she's got a huge fan base. And so she, you know, she built her brand the old-fashioned way: great content, blogger, TV show, books. And so by the time we came out with the magazine, there was such an established kind of fan base. And we've seen numbers in terms of not only single copy sale, but people who send in subscription cards that um, rival our launch of Oprah in the year 2000. And keep in mind, Bill Clinton was in the White House when we launched that magazine. Uh, we, the Royal We, I was not at Hearst at the time. But um, uh, this feels like a, just a great success. So again, you know, we know that in order to succeed, we have to be extremely good at digital, running a profitable digital business, and be good at growing our print profits. When does digital become a majority of your revenue? 
Uh, a long time. A long time. A long time. Like past your tenure, maybe. Uh, p- potentially, but you know, uh, uh, this two thirds, one third uh, balance between print and digital. Perhaps you know, every year a few more points. Um, and this this speaks to the diversification of just you know which Hearst excels at. We're in so many different types of businesses, and and so um, you know we reject this notion of digital first because we think that denigrates the the core business. We think there's a lot of money to be made in the print business. So I understand making a lot of money in in a, in a print business. I understand making a lot of money in an analog business that's going to decline over time. Um, but usually at this point in a, in, a, in a media industry, especially for magazines, which have been under this threat for a long time, um, you see people saying, well, the, the print business is, is, is there, but it's declining. The Times has a version of this, Time Inc., up until the de- they decided to sell to Meredith. We're saying we're going we're gonna to transform into a digital-first company. And, and in, uh, the Time Inc. Uh, thing would be, well, we've, got, we've already got $500 million in revenue. That's as big as a BuzzFeed. Thus, we're, we should be valued at, 2x, but whatever the number is. The point is, is that they spend a lot of time explaining how they're moving out of print. And I just asked you, and you said, no, no, we're staying put, and we're going to be there a long time. And do, and do other things as well. Right. Yeah. So what, are, what do you get about print that they don't? Well, first of all, public companies, um, that the multiples around uh, digital businesses have been high, or the perceived value. We're a private company. So we get to run the business like you run your personal life. How much cash comes in the door and how much do you spend, all right? And the rest is, is left uh, as earnings. And so we, we get the luxury of running the business in a way that is mindful of you know, running a good profitable business and not trying to play to Wall Street. You know, uh, you know, t- Time Inc., you know, before the sale, had a series of kind of strange digital acquisitions, you know, uh, hello giggles and things like that. You felt there was a kind of a press release strategy in order to appease Wall Street. We don't have to Right, wait. without actually spending significant amounts of yeah, money. we don't have to waste our time on that. And, and so obviously, um, uh, we have to grow digital at an ever faster rate, and we continue to evolve the, that business under uh, Troy Young, who's a fantastic leader. But uh, we don't have to uh, contort ourselves to please Wall Street. We get to run this pretty straight-up business. And what does that mean? That means... Uh, we'll launch new products, as we did two in 2017, uh, Airbnb and Pioneer Woman. Uh, some businesses make clothes because they have, you know, served their life, and that's okay. And other businesses will take on different forms. But to be clear, right, digital isn't a fad, right? I mean, it, it is harder, I would assume, to get someone to spend money for a print magazine than it ever was. I'm sure it's harder to get someone to spend money on print advertising than it ever was. So how do you make the case to both of those constituencies, your advertisers and, and the consumers who are going to pay you for a copy of a magazine, that, this is, that they should be spending time on print? Well, the challenge uh, within the business, I think the magazine industry in the U.S. has had a greater problem with advertisers than with consumers. And so, um, so there's all sorts of things that the technological world brings us. One thing it does bring us is the ability to target subscription activity finer than ever because we append a lot of data. And, and so I think not only for, for Hearst but also for Time Inc., Meredith, and Connie Nass, the subscription piece of the business has not been that difficult. Um, obviously, the advertising piece— Because you've got people who already get the product. They keep buying the product. Well, you have part of your business is people who are core subscribers. And generally, like any other subscription business, once you renew for a couple times, you tend to be tucked in, in. for a period of time. Yeah. And then, you know, we publish um, uh, in, uh, magazines that align around people's special interests. Are they travel, automotive, fashion— and uh, it's not that difficult to find those individuals to subscribe or to give gift subscriptions in magazines. That's actually a big part of our business and, and for others as well. I, I think that you know, we've had to constantly convince advertisers 
um, that um, that the medium plays a very important role as part of the media mix. And I'm excited about 2008 because um, and when you start seeing whether it was the Mashable big, big down round or sale and the, the Shazam fire sale, you're going to find for a lot of these really shiny pure play digital companies that the wheels are going to come off. You know, they, uh, so be, before, before we go into the, the, the graveyard for digital, I'm happy to engage in that discussion. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about, about who, who's consuming a magazine today. What uh, Print magazine, bundle information. I love the format. That's why I moved to New York was to go work in magazines. Um, but I'm old now. What, what's the average age of a Hearst magazine subscriber? Well, it varies by brand. Uh-huh. And so obviously the fashion magazines of a younger and Women's Day and Good Housekeeping would be older. What's the range, do you think? Uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, it would start for Cosmo in, you know, college. Uh, and then there go. Are co- people in college getting print subscriptions to Cosmo. They buy more single copy and they subscribe once they have a, more of a permanent address, a uh-huh. permanent home. Um, young women love fashion magazines. Uh, both the advertising and the editorial are aspirational. You know, right. these are magazines. And I think every medium has to identify what it does better than anything else, right? And, t- you know, television with sight, sound, and motion, you can watch a TV commercial and it can make you cry in 30 seconds, right? No one can do that better. Obviously, the ability of the web to uh, serve up up-to-date information, you know, where's the store right around you, to be able to have identified where you've been uh, looking online and, and serve you up an offer for something. Um, magazines appeal to the natural aspirational nature of people all around the world. And no matter how much money you have, you're interested in living better, looking better, traveling better. And, and so if you love, uh, you know, your home, you know, people read the pages of Veranda and El Decor and Architectural Digest published by others. Some of the people have the money to actually decorate like that, and everyone else kind of dreams right. of it. And that's a good thing, and that's a very natural part of that business. Right, and that part works better than looking at it on a screen in most cases. You know, it does. I mean, you think of House as perhaps maybe the highest valuation company in that space. Right. It, it's a very different message. Uh, when you're looking through the beautiful homes published and getting those ideas and getting all that information is different than focused on a very small screen of a recommendation of a lamp or a sofa or something. And they all, they fit together. It's, it's one not to the exclusion of the other. Yeah, I mean, it seems other. like it's, it's, it's part of a continuum, right? Like Howes and Pinterest are where you say, oh, I like that, and maybe I'll come back to it. And that, that, there's no analog for that in analog magazines. There's not. And because the magazines are very curated from an editor's point of view, uh, I think House is a great product. But if you want to look at white Victorian kitchens in the Northeast, they'll give you 7,000 versions of that. Does what it's supposed to do. But if you want to look for a more curated, beautiful home from one of the top designers, that's what these home design magazines do. And the consumer demand for the home design titles is, is great. Um, we, we talked recently, and you told me something that I'll try to get you to say on the record, um, about some, some, of the, some of the things you're asking your editorial staff to do to adapt to the new reality Absolutely. in terms of cost cutting. You talked about photo shoots. Can you, can you talk about that? Well, I, I think that the nature of the business um, benefits from... A, greater scale, and gray, making each piece of contact work harder. So let's look at uh, the lessons from other media forms, okay? So if you have a friend who works in the movie business, they'll tell you if, you, if you met him or her at the premiere, they'll tell you 
where that content will be in one years and two years of what form and how they monetize it, right? Because it works through that long Because they tail. can sell it in four or five or seven different forms. It's all the same thing. All the same thing. And it changes screens from the back of your seat in JetBlue to your hotel room to on it goes, right? All following a very predictable path. In fact, the friction comes when people want to break the window. Right. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, their money is made over a long period of time. So they amortize the cost of creation over years, right? I think the, this was a year or two ago, but I read the article that the most watched film on Netflix at the time was Shawshank Redemption. Okay, people it still watch. runs on Turner every okay. every day. So, uh, and uh, the what we've done in the magazine business is we haven't always taken those lessons to heart. Where as we think about the creation of the content and we think about it over time, it's it's almost like the film producer who figures, well, we'll debut it on a big screen and we'll see what happens after that. We, you know, And serendipity will take us in a different direction. So we're imposing much more discipline how we create our content uh, and to certainly borrow uh, parts of the strategies from other media forms. What does that mean? We have to think about where it travels, not only uh, cross-brand and cross-geography. Um, you know, we had a year or so ago, as an example, uh, we had Drew Barrymore on the cover of Harper's Bazaar in March. We had Drew Barrymore on the cover of Harper's of uh, Mary Claire in April, and Drew Barrymore on the cover of Good Housekeeping in May. Now, is that all the same photo shoot with different outfits? Three separate photo shoots, three separate teams going to California. Oh, that's the old way. That's what you used that's to do. That's the old way. You know, and that's just, you know, shame on us. You know, um, when we can clearly find a photographer with different styles who could have produced all three. So is that going? Is that happening? Happening now, or you say you are now going to produce three different versions of this photo shoot. We're going to run it on three different magazines with the same person. Or an example, if not so much the cover, but we'll shoot Drew Barrymore for the cover of Mary Claire, and maybe we'll shoot Drew Barrymore in her kitchen for uh, El Decor. An example of what we had done about. And she knows this, by the way, right? Her team knows. She knows it, and she liked it. Oh, you have to. Obviously, they they have to be fully consent. And they like it as well because they it's more efficient from their time. But we, um, uh, about a year ago, shot Alec Baldwin's home in East Hampton. And we shot his home for El Decor. We shot, we did uh, uh, Delish, which is one of our great, uh, Delish.com, one of our great stars in our portfolio. We shot cooking videos with Hilaria, his wife, Larry, right? And then we shot her closet for Harper's Bazaar. One day, three different types of content produced. And that becomes the skills of the modern editor that they can imagine different uses of that content across multiple brands and ultimately multiple geographies. So this is a common sense idea to anyone who hasn't spent time in magazines, or at least didn't spend time in magazines until recently, right? But if you spent time in magazines the decades previous, especially at a place like Hearst, also Condé, magazine editors run their own fiefdoms. Um, and the idea of saying to the editor of any one of your titles that you were going to share resources with somebody else, make it make it happen, be a non-starter. So how do you convince them otherwise? Well, well, hopefully they will have read the newspaper or Recode and they realize the world is changing and that, you know, we have to evolve what we do and how we do it. And, you know, we have 10,000 people as part of the magazine group around the world. And you have those who kind of get it and who are volunteering ideas of what they can do and those who resist. And those who resist will probably have less career options in the future than those who help the organization and help the industry evolve. And, you know, you always, uh, people always confuse Darwinism as the strong survive. And it's actually incorrect as those who could best adapt and evolve. You're the second podcast guest this year to talk about that. Well, I think it's mindful for us because we have worked for big... The first one was a comedian, by the way. Oh, really? Oh, well. That's good. 
We work for a big, strong company, you know, the largest employer, private employer in New York City. But we have to constantly change what we do. And I, I think our company's done a great job. I think we stand head and shoulders above most of our peers. I want to ask you about evolution. But first, we have to pay our bills. Our business model involves advertising. So we're going to hear from a fine sponsor right now. Today's show is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes with pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. I'm going to make some tonight. I got pork chops waiting at home. I'm excited about this. HelloFresh offers a wide variety of chef-curated recipes that change weekly. You can choose from a classic plan, a veggie plan, a family plan. That's the one I have at my house right now. You choose the day you want your meals delivered, whenever works best for your busy schedule. This is important because some of these meal kit delivery guys are not good about flexibility. Trust me. All the ingredients come pre-measured in handy kits so you know which ingredients go with which recipe. Sometimes when you hear people talk about these meal kits, they talk about them as that um, they're good for people who don't know how to cook. They get you into cooking. I'm sure that's true. I know how to cook. I'm good at it. I made good lasagna last week. I still like these meal kits. I still like HelloFresh because they prompt me to cook instead of getting crummy takeout, maybe not so good delivery, maybe pizza that's not so healthy. You know exactly what you're eating. makes you feel good. Um, makes you feel good about yourself. HelloFresh makes it so easy to cook delicious balanced dinners for less than $10 a meal. You can stop spending money on takeout, just like I said, and stop wasting time planning your dinners and shopping for groceries. It's convenient and easy. You should try it for yourself. You can get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh by going to HelloFresh.com and entering the code MEDIA30. That's the word media and then three zero. One more time, that's HelloFresh.com, code MEDIA30. And I'm back here with David Carey, who is still running Hearst Magazines. Um, there was a real natural segue for me, but I, but I cut it off so we could have an ad um, from our fine sponsor. I wanted to ask you about the second half of, of 2017. We saw a bunch of departures people who used to run big, fancy magazines. Uh, Greg Carter, but also the editor of Time, editor of uh, L as well. Do we have a, a three? So it's, it's officially a trend story, right? Because there's three. Um, I think there were five in total. But that's a bunch. Okay. Yep. You only need three. Um, is there a connection to all of them leaving in the, in that same time frame? They all have different stories, theoretically. But is there a connection there between those folks leaving and contraction in the magazine business? Well, it's hard to know within all of those five, you know, which were – 100% voluntary, which might have been 100% involuntary. But these are individuals who had great runs as leaders of these businesses. And they don't have to last forever. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that speaks to uh, one of the great benefits of the magazine business is these brands punch way above their weight. These are the world's most famous medium-sized businesses in terms of their stature. You know, I was taking a taxi in from Grand Central to the office and I saw a clip from Jimmy Kimmel, whoever the star was, before they came out, what do they do? They hold a copy of the magazine. This was Entertainment Weekly. Uh, it might have been um, uh, some of the cast from Star Wars. And, and so, because that imprimatur of the cover. So this right. is the, still counts for something. It counts for a lot right. in every way. And so people want to be on magazine covers. And, uh, and, and when we make that call, you know, that's what they expect. In fact, when I was the publisher of The New Yorker, one of the funny things that David Remnick used to tell me is people would call and say, well, they'll, they'll participate in the interview, but they want to be on the cover of The New Yorker, clearly never having seen The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, along with that um, kind of outsized brand weight and fame of magazine brands comes the focus on the personnel who create them. 
And so, um, which again, I think if if you are new to sort of paying attention to the media business, it's sort of hard to understand how big a deal a big deal magazine editor used to be. Yeah, and I think the you know the, all the discussion is this the end of celebrity you know editors and so on. I think the focus comes back on the brand, um, and so I think that fits with the evolution of the business, and that they become a bit less personality based and more based on the business itself. And so it all felt like a natural evolution. And, you know, hats off to these individuals for having great runs. And some of them said, I want to do something else. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think it's telling, right, that that Graydon Carter, who was a big deal, who even people who don't pay attention to magazines may have heard of, is replaced by someone who many people in the magazine business had never heard of, Radhika Jones, um, who may do a very good job. I think I I wrote a headline saying she may be the new editor. And then the, the subtitle was Who? Um, and I got some grief for it. But I think that was the point was she was not well known. Um, she'll, learn, she'll learn her way based on the quality of the product and not who she has for dinner. And I, you know, uh, saw this firsthand when I was uh, at The New Yorker when David Remnick uh, replaced Tina Brown. Tina was then the most famous editor yes. in the world. And David, who now, of course, has grown a great deal in his stature and his respect, was unknown on day one. And I think the New York Times said the difficulty of David following the 1,000-watt light bulb that was Tina. And, uh, and of course, David, what he produced, who he is, his expertise, uh, became much admired through the quality of his work and not through anything but. You mentioned working at Condé Nast, The New Yorker. Um, you were a big deal executive there. Um, you left and went to Hearst. What got you to move? At the time, Condé Nast was sort of the more glamorous place to be, I think. Well, um, I worked at Hearst coming out of college. And so I worked there for 10 years and I worked at Condé Nast. And I have, you know, I, I had such a very positive experience with the Newhouse family and at Condé Nast. But the chance for me to come back and to, uh, to run the magazine division was really a dream come true. You know, Hearst at its core is a company that is built on taking risks. And going back to our founder, William Randolph Hearst, going back to the ultimate risk in 1963 when Helen Gurley Brown walked through our, uh, our, our doors with an idea for a magazine um, based on her book, Sex and the Single Girl. She had never run a magazine before. And they gave her, they didn't start a new magazine, they gave her one of the existing franchises. Kind of the right product, the right time. Cosmopolitan 1965 became this explosive success. Spawn off a lot of cash. Frank Benick, our longtime CEO, used that cash to initially um, fund the losses of A&E created with Cap Cities, which lost money for a number of years. The profits from Cosmo helped fund the purchase of 20% stake of ESPN when people were not lining up outside our door for that or their door for that. And those businesses, of course, became quite significant. And you still have big chunks of those businesses, right? We do. Or, and, and so in particular ESPN, even though it's, it's, it has declined in terms of both revenue and profit, throws off an enormous amount of money. You guys get to keep 20% of those profits, which are significant. Um, how, much, how much does that investment alone sort of give you cover to worry less about the economics of the business quarter to quarter, year to year? Well, the, the company, again, because of our private status, has constantly taken the cash flow and invested in a broad range of businesses. And so one of the big uh, areas we've been investing in at the parent company level has been in companies that are business information and data companies. And we've invested a great deal in healthcare. We own 80% of Fitch Ratings. Uh, a year ago, we purchased a company called Camp Systems that monitors the health and well-being of All private profoundly aircraft. unsexy businesses. That have incredibly reliable cash flows, you know, become very sticky in terms of their, their, uh, their customers, high switching costs. And 
You know, Frank is really a genius of diversification. Um, uh, you know, he, in some ways he's a, he's a private man, but what he built at Hearst and that understanding he had across magazines, newspapers, business information, um, you know, our venture business and so on is quite remarkable. And that gives us a very unique position in a changing media world. I used to talk to you f uh, a lot about what was going to happen to the tablet magazine. Mm. iPad launches in 2010. For a bunch of different reasons, there's a, a lot of initial interest in what the magazine business is going to do with the iPad. Um, and you and all your competitors are spending a bunch of time and money trying to figure out how to build digital versions of your magazines. Um, and I would have you on stage and you'd say, well, we're going to hit this projection. Uh, obviously, that that didn't work out. What what did the experience of trying to build iPad and other tablet magazines do for you? What did you learn from that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember I did sit in a red chair in Laguna Beach and uh, after we had hit a first million of tablet circulation units without breaking a sweat and projected that we'd get to three million. Um, How'd that work out? It didn't work out yeah. so well. Uh, and, and there's a video record of that someplace, I bet. Uh, probably on a funky player on power yeah, exactly. access. So uh, what did we learn from that? Obviously, um, you know, uh, the early sales of iPads themselves skyrocketed, and then Apple created larger screen phones, as others did, and people, you know, shifted out. Uh, and now, you know, you have a seven-inch phone or a right. larger. The, the, the big picture was that we all thought the iPad was going to be this dominant device, and it turns out the iPhone was the The, the iPhone, the large-screen iPhone replaced, because you could, the things you thought you would do on a tablet in terms of reading newspapers, right. and, you know, the iPhone at the time was tiny. You look at those early screens, and um, the thought was we needed that big canvas, and obviously consumer attention shifted uh, in many ways. And um, uh, we found that it's interesting that the first million of uh, circulation came super easy, and then every unit after that became incredibly difficult. So I guess what I think about when I ask you what did you learn, I think about when the next device, when the next platform comes up and says, we'd like to work with you, or you, how do you think about gauging how much energy you're going to invest in that? And there's a second question as well. Our answer, our answer to these things is yes. And so um, what did we learn? You know, we spent a fair amount of time and a modest amount of money. It didn't quite play out. In the world of having to constantly uh, interrupt what you do and to innovate, it was a success. You know what? Uh, it didn't quite achieve all that we hoped, but life went on. You know, uh, it wasn't shortly uh, long thereafter that um, Evan Spiegel came to our offices when Snapchat was just Snapchat and said he's going to create a media product that will become the most important place for our audience to interact with our To content. our platform, which to this date is best known for sending disappearing genitalia pictures. We'll just take disappearing pictures, okay? That's all said, it was great. Known. Okay. And so our answer was, great, where do we sign? And we signed on. We Cosmopolitan is the biggest brand on uh, the Discover platform. We have seven but brands. But having in total. gone through the iPad experience, did you go? Well, we're going to do it, but we're 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 going to we're going to pull back a little more than we would have had we not burnt all that energy. Seems like a no-brainer. First yeah. of all, you know, you lean in. Now, let's keep in mind, you have energy and you have financial investment. Even the iPad was a modest financial uh -huh. investment. So we had nothing to write down. We had no embarrassment. And guess what? We spent some time and it did not work out. And, and so you don't want to be uh, scared about doing those things. That's why almost anyone who knocks on our door within reason, we say yes to. So the other thing I think about when I think about and I think about how I covered the the tablet stuff was that you guys all collectively, all the publishers said, what's, what we love about the iPad business is, is that we've been giving our stuff away for free on the internet. 
and and people have gotten used to that. And what we're going to do now is we're going to charge the same price for these tablet magazines we do for print. We're going to reset the economics of the magazine business. And it seems like what's happened now is actually that aggregation free content model is as strong as it's ever been. People are still used to getting their stuff for free, except they're getting it – instead of getting it on the internet, they're getting it from Facebook basically. Um, and that Facebook has become – the rise of Facebook has sort of screwed up the business that you guys have, which is aggregating content and packaging it. So how do you, how do you deal with Facebook specifically? Yeah, so I, I, would, I would say that the content we mostly put out that gets the best traction uh, on digital is not the same exact content from the magazine. So, and we create different content, of course, that is native for digital. And um, I had done the math that if tablets had gotten – to 25% of circulation, our profits would have tripled. Well, that would have been nice, but it didn't happen, you know? Uh, and uh, we took the subway here, and maybe if it tripled, we would have taken not the subway. We'll get you an Uber X. Exactly. So, uh, but I think you bring up a good point about, you know, Facebook's role across all media. So we're 10 years into the arrival of the iPhone, and, and I think what you're now seeing is the drumbeat of a lot of press um, around, um, you know, is big tech uh, the equivalent of big tobacco from the 50s and 60s? The, the arrival of the Facebook Messenger product for kids I thought was a very scary concept. And the article that The Atlantic wrote a few months ago about that, was, that really took the tech companies to task for building products that take advantage of human vulnerabilities around addiction I thought was quite profound. And, you know, whether it's the New York Times piece about teenage anxiety, and, and I just saw a headline that in Georgia, automotive fatalities have gone up 35% attributed to distracted driving. Um, I forget which city now gives people tickets if they cross the street on their phones because of the number of people getting hit by cars and bicycles. So I think there's a larger issue, which is the, um, the massive addiction, which is yet to be fully identified in terms of what the solutions are, I think disrupted everything. The press loves the Facebooks about Facebook, Google, whomever, the, the, the tables have turned, things are, are, are not looking up for you anymore. I don't, I'm not sure how that's actually going to pan out as a business. But you, but you think there is a there there. It's not just journalists enjoying shade and fruit. You had Roger McNamee, who made a ton of money, right, in the early Facebook, yeah. and I believe introduced Cheryl to Mark, right? His mm-hmm. brother was a partner at Elevation, who basically was the first to call, you know, uh, Basically, you know, Facebook, the equivalent of kind of cigarettes. Oh, no, there's, now there's a well-established trend of, of people who have made a lot of money on Facebook. Shamath, Sean Parker saying, oh, that, we should, Facebook's a terrible mistake. I wish I'd never done it. I'm happy to be rich, by the way, from the Facebook money I made. Well, I've made no money on Facebook, yeah. so I can, I can speak <laughs> from a different position. That said, um, I, I think that um, these issues of addiction are quite real. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, if you ask, you know, young people, you can't, you know, read a book for a month, you can't, you know, um, uh, watch TV for a month, you can't be on your phone for a day. And, and so th- this is the, uh, the center of all the disruption. And uh, you can't imagine that in any current Do you gov- think that wave recedes, though, and suddenly, suddenly the, the Facebook threat to your, to your business, the digital threat to your business goes away because some combination of, of socially it's less acceptable to play on phones and the government regulates it or—, or well, these are, this, this is addiction. People can't help themselves, let's be clear. Okay, so it's not just, you know, leaving your phone at home. Um, it, it's hard to imagine, you know, that the government would actually get involved. But, um, you know, if you read, you know, um, 
uh, uh, the four by Scott Galloway, someone I, I've known for a long time. Um, there is a case building that suggests that um, these companies need closer scrutiny. Where yeah. that goes, exactly what happens, obviously it's happening in Europe, less, less happening in the United States. But it, it all fits, I think, into the next chapter of digital. Uh, the big companies and the small companies. So let's let's talk about that. We you were you were eager to to predict doom for for many companies in the digital space. And by the way, you guys have made a lot of investments in, in some of the bigger players, right? Yeah, Refinery. You've got money in Buzzfeed, Vice, Vice. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and these are all some of the companies people are looking at, saying, I don't know what twenty eighteen is going to look like for them. And you and you're one of them, saying, I don't, not, not to be clear, you didn't specifically forecast doom for your portfolio companies. But yeah, maybe, that would be that wouldn't be so. It would be less politic than you normally are, but you're saying there's going to be a lot. Uh, we've we've had we've had hints of it in 2017. You think more to come 2018? Well, the nature of the business, um, and and obviously there's we've all seen I don't know how many iterations of the digital world um, in the last 20 25 years. So you know businesses with no barriers to entry um, always have curious kind of paths, right? And so. Um, I think you guys got a great company here and real expertise. You know, my son and three of his friends could start a competitor tomorrow. And, you know, and you don't worry Jim about... Jim Bankoff sometimes listen to this. And so. you don't worry Hi, about Jim. you don't worry about my son and his friends. You worry about the 5,000 versions of my son and my friends because it only costs them like 5,000 bucks and they're in business. And so businesses, you know, uh, some sort of moat around the business, which, you know, Warren Buffett is always self, it doesn't be a big moat, but a little bit of yeah. moat. And so these businesses have no moats. And this doesn't mean that- What's all, the Hearst moat? The Hearst moat? The yeah. Hearst moat is the diversification, the private status, the ability to invest for the future. Right, but the product, someone can make a competitive product to anything you sell, right? It goes on the screen. So you, you have that same problem that we oh, have. Oh, I'm sorry. The Her- yeah. So ultimately, the Hearst moat at the end has to be the, the credibility of the brand, that what you read- on it because it comes from L or Harper's Bazaar, that it means more. And that ultimately for advertisers who are looking for trusted environments that they will value it more highly over some long tail right. ad buy. At Vox Media, my employer is trying to do that at speed, right? Yeah. Relatively quickly build up the authority of Recode. And, through a, and, and, so. and they're doing a your version of what we're doing because you're doing it through a collection of trusted brands yeah. and trusted voices that'll be different from the guy in the garage someplace. We hope. Yeah, so, 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 but broadly, so broadly, these businesses that have been uh, early on uh, just kind of gaming the ad system to show twenty and thirty percent growth off small numbers—that's kind of easy. And you know, the, the degree of difficulty of running a money losing digital business is like zero. Um, or I'm reminded by you know one of the great scenes from Toy Story, and you have the skeptical Woody and Buzz, and you know Buzz is going to fly, and Woody says, "No, Buzz, that's not flying. That's falling with style." Okay, <laughs> and I think for some of these companies that have lost a huge amount of money by going back to their investors, have been falling with style. And in 2018, the rubber meets the road. Which ones are going to turn into durable businesses with reasonable profit margins, and which ones have been just kind of a little bit of a game? And I'm not sure who's going to come out good or bad. And we'll learn from the winners and learn from the losers. Obviously, the the role of digital in everyone's lives becomes only more important. But you have people that have been gaming the system and that in 18, a lot of them will go away. Their Aeron chairs will be sold at auction and there'll be another chapter that will, uh, that will emerge. I've always thought in terms of the, the, the companies who come to us and something is for sale almost every day, that you need at least 25% of your revenue to come from non-advertising sources, conferences, data sold to your clients, e-commerce, whatever it happens to be. But if you are an advertising-dependent digital business, then I think you have a lot of problems in the future. And you think digital advertising is more at risk than the, the advertising that, that 
helps your the two thirds of, of your print business? Well, for us or for the just broadly, right? Like, it, like, would you be? It, I understand the the skepticism about advertising, right? But I would I would assume that that is as big a problem for Hearst as it is for any of these digital advertisers. Yeah, so you've got we'll, more money. Yeah, so we'll ignore the size of uh, market share that Facebook and Google have uh-huh. combined. You know, the market is still big enough that individual brands and individual companies can still succeed. Absolutely. And uh, we've had examples of brands that have had huge growth because they're doing something that is that is very distinct. Can we build them into $5 billion businesses? Perhaps not. Maybe we'll hit the, the Facebook and Google wall. But we have a lot of room to run in our digital business. Absolutely. Are you guys buyers of, uh, you said you want to buy the Aaron shares. Um, are you interested I, I, in buying I think we'll, I think we'll be the, buyers. The you know, well? Our challenge with these businesses in terms of outright buyers has been the valuations make no sense. You know, at Hearst, you got to see your way that you can buy a profitable business and to get paid back in a relatively short period of time. Otherwise, why are you buying a business? And, and so I, I think the valuations to date have been problematic, which does not mean that if there's a reset coming, that businesses that kind of fit our area of expertise could come into, into range for us. And I think that'd be great. I think that's going to be a natural thing that these companies, not just the Mashable uh, acquisition by, um, by um, Ziff Davis, Davis, but you'll see others that will tuck into larger entities. Your company is a good example as well. It'd been kind of, you know, it had a chapter following Dow Jones and now a different chapter uh, as part of a consolidated organization. We were a solo business for a year and a half. Yeah. I think Walt Mossberg wanted to sell the business about two months into it. Solo businesses, any business is difficult, you know, today. I don't care who you are. And, and so I, I think that there's going to be opportunities for us and for Condé Nast and for others. Um, and I think that'll be a good thing for the business. So consolidation all around. Absolutely. From Time Warner to magazine business, digital business. Um, if you weren't at working at Hearst, who, who do you think is sort of best positioned to survive 2018 in style? Not the fa- failing in style, but, but actually succeeding. I'm sorry, in terms which, of the- Which media business are you most bullish on for 2018? Mm. Non-Hearst. Well, you know, like everyone else, I'm a big fan of Disney and what they do. And, um, and the, the great content that they purchased, the great talent, and the, now they're buying greater pipes and certainly uh, potentially buying more pipes in, around the world. And so back to where we started, uh, if, if Rupert Murdoch wants to get out of the business, you say if Disney is the buyer, then Disney knows what they're doing. I think they're great operators in every way. And I, I think they do a great job of both serving you know, marketers and serving advertisers. And so they, they are at the high. But I, I think there's um, a lots of interesting opportunities. And I think that the business will, will bifurcate even more. It'll either be one, at scale, as we've been discussing, or you're going to super serve individual passions. And so one of the, the media executives I admire most is Marvin Schenken. Marvin at Schenken Communications has three media brands, Wine Spectator, Cigar Aficionado, and Whiskey Advocate. And guess what Marvin's three great passions in life are, okay? I have a hunch. And so he built his business around uh, 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 verticals that he has an inherent love for. And Wine Spectator is a great example. It's got a premium magazine. It really has great authority because of the depth of its ratings. It um, does live events, both intimate as well as large scale, and it charges for digital. And I I think there's lots of lessons uh, for media is you can kind of be some things to all people, big scale business, or you can be all things to some people, super serving a niche. I think those that are in the middle will have a hard time. I agree. We should leave it at that point since we're all in agreeance, as Fred Durst would say. Um, That's that's an old-time rock reference. 
David, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me, Peter. Thanks to you guys for listening. We like doing this. We like that you like listening. Um, all we ask is that you tell someone else that you like listening so that they can listen as well. You know how to do that, so I won't tell you how to post on Facebook or tweet or just tell someone on the street. Thanks to our sponsors. And thanks to Cadence 13 and Box Media who bring those sponsors to the show so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to my producers, Eric Johnson and Gold Arthur. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week. Hey, this is Peter Kafka, the host of Recode Media. You have been listening to this podcast, which means that you like listening to people talk about media and technology, which is very good news because we've got an entire conference all about just that topic. It's Code Media. It's coming up very soon. You should go. It's February 12th and 13th in Huntington Beach, California. It is a very, very nice place to be in February. Specifically, it's the Pasea Hotel and Spa there in Huntington Beach. Enough about the place. I want to tell you about what we're going to do there. We're going to talk to the smartest, most interesting people in media and technology. We, as Kara Swisher and I, we're going to talk to people like Oath CEO Tim Armstrong. You've heard him on this podcast before. Patreon CEO Jack Conte. You've heard him on this podcast before. And HuffPost Editor-in-Chief Lydia Polgreen. You've heard her on this podcast before. There's a theme there. Other awesome guests you may not have heard before. Susan Wojcicki, she's the CEO of YouTube. Carrie Trainer, he's the CEO of SoundCloud. I don't think he's spoken publicly anywhere yet. That's a good one. Executives from Facebook, a bunch of other cool people I can't tell you about yet because we haven't formally announced them, but you will enjoy hearing from all of them. If you like this podcast, you will like this conference. If you want to learn more, you can go to recode.net, click on events easy to find. Um, you can figure it out because you are smart because you listen to this podcast. That's Code Media Conference, February 12th and 13th in Huntington Beach, California. I will see you there.